Welcome to The Vine Time with Melanie Boldock. Today's guest is Bartholomew Broadbent for Broadbent Selections. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. It's me. So when I call you Barth- Bartholomew? Is that what I should call you? <clears throat> you can call me that, or you can call me by my nickname, which is Bolu, B-O-L-L-E-W. Like Bolu. That sounds yeah. like fun. Okay. So, uh, Bolu, um, welcome. Thanks for coming today. Excellent. It's lovely Thanks. to have you. Yeah, uh, we've been in communication for some time, so it's the first time we've actually actually kind of met here on Zoom, which is great. And uh, where are you now? I am in my office in Richmond, Virginia. And that's where you live. That's where I live. Yeah, for the past sixteen years. Yeah, after twenty-one years in San Francisco and five years in Canada, and growing up in England. <laughs> uh, okay, great. So, uh, I, what I wanted you to do, you know, your wine story is so amazing and epic. So, I want you to tell me your story. Oh, well, I mean, I grew up in England um, and in a wine family. Uh, my father was called Michael Broadbent. He wrote um, a bunch of books about wine and he wrote for Canter magazine for 433 consecutive months. And most importantly, he uh, started the wine auctions in Chris- at Christie's in 1966 um, in London and then uh, established them all, all around the world. And, did other auctions like Napa Valley Wine Auction with Bob Mondavi and stuff like that. Um, So when I was 20, I left England to live in Canada, um, spent four years with a wine agent there, Mm -hmm. and then met the Symington family who moved me to America to start a company for them uh, called Premium Port Wines, which was their import division. Mm -hmm. Um, And my job was basically apart from establishing distribution for them was to go around America teaching about port uh this was in 1996 and then uh so, sorry 1986 and then in 1988 they bought the Madeira wine company and we relaunched Madeira in America so for 10 years from 1986 to 96 I was um just primarily doing port and Madeira um for the Symingtons then I left them in 96 to start my own company, Broadbent Selections. Uh, initially, it was to start the Broadbent brand, which we have, and to represent a couple of port brands. But then we started representing wineries from around the world. And basically now we we produce our own wines. We produce ports, Madeiras under the Broadbent name, um, Vino Verde, which is the best known of our wines, and some other wines from Portugal and Austria. And then we also started a brand in Napa Valley called Auctioneer and another one called Architect. And but primarily my business broadband sections as we represent about 40 family-owned wineries and do their distribution in the US. That's Including Yeah. So well, I you sell should. your wine in LA. So that's, we've we've been friends forever, but then I sold you some of your wines in LA, which is great. I had such a huge book there. So I sold everything. I had had the entire VS book. I had MMD, then I had your wine. So it was like, I had the second territory in California. You did a fantastic job and we were sorry to see you go. (laughs) I know, I know. Well, you know, hopefully that everybody else is selling your wine after I left. Anyway, I've returned to Maine and I know your wines are available here with Easterly. Yeah, we did some restaurant consultancy and brought in the Vino Verde and things like that, which is great. Funny enough, we overperform in certain markets like um, Maine and Mississippi and Mm -hmm. places like that, where we can 
we have disproportionate amount of distribution. So you can find right. wines we import all over Maine. Sure, sure. Well, it's because you have a great distributor. Yes. You know, it really, it comes down to the bottle, you know, the people on the street, really. You know, it's all, it's all about, about stories that. and telling wine stories and having great staff. And, you know, yeah, yeah, one, Lucy is the girl that I, I was actually buying from, and she's fantastic. She's from yeah. Midcoast and has worked for Eastley for a little while, but she's great. Yeah, um, she is. What's that? She is, yes. She's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, so you, you were part of wine royalty, if you will. And then it, somewhere down the line, you had a company in Dublin. Well, I still do. Oh, okay. Because I, I still there. Yeah. Oh, did you? All right. A little company in Dublin is a necessity um, for us to sell wine in uh, Europe. Because if you're a European, uh, if you have a, a wine in Europe, and let's say Broadbent Selections is an American company. So if I have a wine in Europe that I'm making and I mm -hmm. want to sell it somewhere else in Europe, I would have to export it from the European Union and then take it back to sell there. So in order for us to be able to sell a European wine to another European country, we have to have a European, European company. And you can't do it in the UK now because the UK is no longer part of the Euro, right? Which is exactly why I established right. it in, in Dublin. I would have done it in Portugal, but the I don't know if you ever tried opening a bank account in Europe, but it's absolutely tedious. Well, I, I lived in Dublin, and I have an Irish driver's license. I, all of my wine education came in Ireland. So I studied with Mary Gaynor, who lives in Kilkenny and has a school, but she's taught everybody in the Irish wine industry about wine. Uh, so, And I worked for Jean Smullen, who runs all the events in Dublin, and they're both very well-known women in the wine business there. Fantastic. Um, but I lived there and worked there and had a bank account in an English-speaking country, which is Ireland. And it was difficult. It's very difficult to gain access to it. When I left, it was very difficult for me to get in touch with anybody because you have to be in Ireland to get a text and this and that. Um, but I, I haven't yet tried to open a bank account on the continent or anywhere else that doesn't speak. Well, it was it took me a long time to get an account open in Dublin. I tried in Portugal, but in the end, I just gave up. It was just so complicated. Because and then like, nothing in Ireland happens fast. I love it there. It's my <laughs> other home. I have three homes, Ireland, Maine, and California. They're the three places in the world that I love the most. And I kind of bounce back between the three of them. But it, nothing happens fast. And if there's a bank holiday weekend, forget it. Nothing like you make it done <laughs> next Friday. Yeah, exactly. Once yeah. everybody gets back to work. So where is but, your company based in Dublin? It's in the um, the Black Church, which is in St. Mary's Place. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then place. how long have you had it there? Well, I just moved it there from um, uh, from a, uh, the wharf down in Dublin, Waterfront, right. Spencer Docks. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so not, not long there, but uh, the company has been there for, for about four or five years. I guess. You know, this is a big thing. The, at, when I was there six years ago, there were people, there were 500 new jobs coming from the UK every single day to Ireland because of Brexit. Yeah. And, and they were moving over, you know, English, you know, English base, you know, and, and they're part of the Euro and all this stuff, but there was no place for anyone to live. And I went to, I was living in Galway because, and running a wine company in Dublin. So I was commuting back and forth. There's a new motorway. It's only two hours back and forth or two hours there, two hours back. And uh, I went to Dublin for an evening. I had some event that I was going to, and I stayed in an Airbnb in, in the in the city. And I was in a three-bedroom, semi-detached house that had been turned into a five-bedroom Airbnb. And <laughs> in that house, right, and, and it was beautiful. It was a nice little neighborhood. It had a lockbox. So you, you were given the lockbox details. 
And when I went down and made a cup of tea before I went to bed, there was a bunch of people who were living there who were European who'd come over to work who were living there full time. So whatever I was paying per wow. night, they were actually paying every day or they were, I think they had a weekly rate, but they were living there constantly because there's no accommodation in Dublin. Like it's just the city has just grown so much and yeah. there's no, there's no real place for anyone to live. So unless you want to live further out. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Wow. <laughs> Getting back to wine. There's one person growing grapes in all of Ireland and he is in Scaries, which is North Dublin. I've interviewed him before. A very interesting cat. Oh, fun. Like German varietals. And, uh, oh. That's it. But there is English wine, and you're selling some. Yes, I'm a shareholder in a company called Gusborne, and mm-hmm. Gusborne makes the top English sparkling wine, which is we... Is it in Kent? Yeah, and they they have uh, vineyards in um, Hampshire and Kent, and okay. they're based in Kent, right, very close to Rye on the Sussex border. And they um, were this... To, people won't know this necessarily, but we're recording this uh, two days after the coronation. Yes, of course. The coronation's official sparkling wine was Gusborne. Oh, and that's exciting. Was, there you go. Uh, uh, Gusborne Brut Reserve. And it was, Gusborne was also the official sparkling wine for the Queen's Jubilee last year. So, oh, wonderful. A, a lot of, um, uh, was it two years ago, the Jubilee? I can't remember. But um, last anyway, year. It was just before she died. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's um it's really exciting to rep Santa Wine. And when we launched it in America, who maybe I don't know, five years ago, four years ago, uh, I was really worried about the price. Um but how much is it retailing for here? So the brute reserve's about sixty dollars the Blonde Blanc is around 80. They've just okay. launched a super premium uh, uh, game changer wine for England in the $350 level, which competes with, you know, Comte de Champagne and um, uh, Dom Perignon and stuff like that. But I was really surprised. It was the easiest product launch um, mm-hmm. we ever did. Did you sell it when you were in selling our wine? You no, know, it was probably part of my book, but I, I think once I discovered that I was selling your wines, I was on my way back to Maine. <laughs> my story to California is crazy. I, I drove out there. I moved out there. I, I worked for Southern. So I worked for Southern in Maine. Yeah. And then I went to California to work in the second largest territory in the state to sell wine for Southern, um, signature fine wines. And then uh, about four, no, not even three months after I got there, my aunt passed away. And I had yeah. all this family stuff that sort of brought me home. So no sooner did I get to poor California, I had to come home and, you know, I'm sure much to the frustration of the people I worked with, but uh, they were quite nice about it in the end. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'm sure I did. It was, probably was part of my portfolio, but I, at that stage, I, I don't really know, I, but I'm sure it was. Um, up, until, up until COVID in, in the Los Angeles, Southern California area. They were close. 95% was in restaurants. So overnight, our, our 95% of right. our business went away. So we had to quickly pivot. And, because and, when I got there, they were like, oh, no, we were shut down the whole time. I'm like, you mean yeah. you didn't reopen last summer? They're like, no, the whole time, the entire on-premise. They oh. lost. So when I started, it was kind of difficult because people had just opened back up, but they were very apprehensive to buy products because they had been closed for so long. They didn't have any revenue source, or maybe they got some people, you know, some loans or something like that. But it was a tricky time, and I was. It was amazing to me that they were closed for that long, where we were open, and you know, 
we have winter. They don't have well, winter there. They can the, eat outside. We can. The, the <laughs> English sparkling wine suffered more than practically any other wine because sure. it was, um, in 2020 it was a tough year for for Gusborne, but in 2021 we we beat our 2019. Sure. So, Let's just talk a little bit about English wine and why it's so special. I mean, I know, but and you know, but um, talk to me about uh, the, what's well, happening. Yeah. So the interesting thing is, and it's rather sad to say this, but English uh, climate has changed. Um, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, we couldn't make wine of this quality. Uh, but global warming has changed the climate so much that um, English sparkling wine is now basically consistently beating French champagne's equivalents in blind tastings, even with Parisian sommeliers who taste mm-hmm. blind and think they're voting for the French ones and they all vote for the Amer- the English ones. Um, but so global warming is a factor. And then the soil is the same as in the Champagne region in France, where the white uh, chalk pops out at the white cliffs of Dover under the channel, goes on the right. channel. And, and once upon a time, they were connected. Yep. Where the plates separated. So it's really just the same plain, really. Yeah. It's the same soil. But in addition to the chalk soils, we have other uh, gravelly soils and other soils, um, which is enabling us to actually make more complex wines than if you were just growing in the chalk like champagne is. Sure. Um, and then, but we're using the same varieties, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay, and we're blending them the same way with double, you know, Metal Champenois fermentation in a bottle, and uh, we're, we're aging them on leaves for, we're, we're doing um, three or four or five years on Sully. Uh, so the, the, the quality is just spectacular. Batonage. Yeah, all, all that stuff. There's there's a local um, somewhere in England. I have to give them a shout out too. There's a group of growers. They have an organization there, and I've been in touch with them a couple of years ago. But then COVID hit. I was supposed to go over there to film with oh. them. Um, so uh, I'm sure you're somehow involved with them. Yeah, we might be part of that group because right. I know we're part of a group. I'm, I'm right. Exactly. And so, um, you know, you've been around the world with all of your wines. You know, you have mm-hmm. different wines that are part of your portfolio as well as wines that you sell. Um, we have a mutual friend in Mark Huchar. Mark Huchar his name. Wonderful. I did meet him finally last year, and we're hoping to go there yes. to film next year, which is great, um, from Chateau Moussard. Uh, but what is your favorite wine? You know, so, what's your favorite well, wine Chate- region? So Chateau Moussard is my favorite wine. Oh, there you go. Um, See, there you go. Yeah, and just to clarify, you didn't mention that it's in Lebanon. I think most people nowadays know where Chateau Moussard is, but some people who are new, new to the wine or the wine business. For might sure. And it's the largest house in Lebanon. It's one of the largest. Um, well, regions. it's the only one which continued making wine throughout the Civil War. And that's when it became famous because in 1979, they could no longer sell the wine in, in Lebanon because it was just the conditions, Civil War conditions were too dire. So, um, Serge Hochard, Mark's father, went to England to the Bristol Wine Fair where he met my father and mm-hmm. said to my father, Michael, I want you to the my father tasted it and was blown away and declared it the find of the the the, the year and he wrote about it in Decanter and it became famous. Really became spectacular famous. wines. But there's a certain I'm trying to think of what the grapes are. There's Cabernet and Grenache. And there's another grape. There's well, three grapes. so they make different wines. They make 
the Chateau Musard is the famous one. Then they make another label called Hochard, which is a different set of grapes. And then they Musard Jeune, Young Musard, which is, again, a different set of grapes. But the famous one, Chateau Musard, is a third each of Cabernet Sauvignon, Carignan, and Cinso. Oh, and, that's what it is. Yeah. And the whites, which are fascinating wines, made by with Obde and Morois. And those two grapes are the, when Genesis Robinson commissioned the study of grape varieties using DNA testing, um, all the grapes in the world have connections to some other grape, mm-hmm. with the exception of those two, which don't even have... Ex- oh, isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah, most um, of them date back to Croatia, isn't it? They all... Seem to go back to Croatia, Yugoslavia, or, or Georgia. Well, yeah, most of the regular grapes, but the the birthplace of wine is in in, in the the that um, region, uh, Lebanon. The whole sort of I uh, forget what's called that region, which encompasses uh, Lebanon and surrounding countries. But you know the the Romans built the Temple of Bacchus in the Bekaa Valley, which. Oh, wow which is basically proof or indication that in the Roman times, the Bekaa Valley was the greatest wine region in the world, most respected. And the reason we don't really know about Musar, well, we do know about Musar because it's become so cult famous now. Uh, but the reason we don't really recognize Lebanon as a, a classic region is because when America was coming to, to um to its wine sort of birth, basically, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. That's when America was really learning about wine, coming of age. Coming of age of wine. 60s, 70s and 80s, um, um, America was learning about wine. And so the wines which were available were Bordeaux, Burgundy, Port. You know, mm-hmm. But... Um, Lebanon wasn't because it was a civil war and there was only one winery still. Politics. And some of the grape varieties that that are being produced there, like Cabernet, they were brought there. Is that correct? They're not indigenous, the sins of Cabernet. They're not indigenous. What's that? They're not indigenous. No, they were brought there by the French and they they speak French there, don't they? Yeah, so they speak French, English and and, um, Arabic. And it's it's an interesting... uh, country that's got um it's half christian half muslim half mm-hmm. you know it's got lots of different um religions and ethnicities and uh but serge hosha was french christian lebanese and during the war most of his family moved back to paris he but he continued making the wine every every year and by the way when i tasted the wine in 1979 my father gave me the glass and said boy you should taste this and I did, and I immediately declared this is the best wine I've ever had in my life, mm-hmm. and it's always been my favorite since. And the reason reason that holds any weight in in sort of uh, or is the fact that I was back then. I was drinking our house wines were 1945 Bordeaux, 1961 Bordeaux. We were drinking the best wines in the you world. You were drinking Buck's Booth Farm. <laughs> no, because of my father's job at Christie's, he had access to the best wines in the world, so I knew what great wine was. But this one became my favorite always right. has been. it's so. definitely a star i think the first time i tasted it was in dublin actually um the one wine i'm interested in is the rosé there is a rosé that they're producing it's sparkling rosé isn't it 
Well, no, it's not sparkling rose. They yeah. make a regular rosé. And in fact, yeah. the oldest Chateau Musard that I've had was when I went there in, 20, in 1999. Um, we had a uh, bottle of 1940 rosé from Chateau Musard, right. and it was as fresh as could be. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, look, next my... year, they're building a new tasting room, from what I've been told. So oh. um, they we were going to go this year, and then we decided to do it next year because of that. So. I'm taking all my employees in october well lucky them that's wonderful and so you were selling your wine all over the u.s correct yep um and uh here in maine it's with easterly and then it's with signature fine wines in los angeles yeah um what is next for your for broadband selections well we've been expanding into the caribbean a lot so we're selling a lot there i have Uh, some people there too oh good Mm -hmm. i know well we'll talk about that later yes of course Um, we we've uh whereas until um until uh covid lockdown we had a a fairly sort of steady portfolio but during covid we decided to branch into france and italy and napa so we are representing now three great wineries from italy bindi sagardi uh, capanna and bava and we're mm-hmm. Anything from Sicily? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, and we're representing a bunch of um, really great Burgundies and mm-hmm. Rhone wines, La Ferme du Mont and mm-hmm. um, uh, Domaine Georges Renet. And then we're also representing Chateau de Pomard, uh, Pierre Maël, and um, the, uh, the, a family from. Um, uh, Burgundy, which makes Chateau de Chamaray and a bunch, bunch of other wines. So we're doing a lot of that. And then we've also branched out into Napa. We have our own brand, Auctioneer, which I mentioned earlier, which is a tribute to my father, Auctioneer, yes, of course. Um, making a style of Napa wine that he actually enjoyed. Because in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, Napa was making a great wines um, which were respected all around the world. And then the sort of in the late 90s, they went up in alcohol intensity concentration. They lost a lot of the. It has a, lot a little of bit to do with climate too, because they they global warming has wreaked its havoc on Napa too. We just had a winemaker last week talk about how he can't biodynamic he can't use biodynamics in Napa because they have so much sunlight and all these things. It's a different environment altogether. So, sure, uh, but they can. The, there was it was a fashion that also led it to a lot of I mean global warming does have an impact on winemaking in Napa of course but um, it is still possible to make uh, oh, restrained wines which is what we're doing we're making a wine that's under fourteen percent alcohol so um, uh, you know when I moved to from California to Virginia I looked at all the bottles uh, in my cellar as we moved and I looked at all the California they all uh, pre nineteen ninety wines were all twelve and a half percent alcohol, basically around there. And you know, even Mondavi um, uh, Cabernet Reserve was like twelve and a half percent alcohol. Mm-hmm. And when I looked in a shop uh, at the time I was moving, um, it was like fifteen point eight percent that year. So the wine I sold most of the wines I sold Hineas. Yeah. You name it, I sold them. Um, I had the Cohen wines. I had um, 
Silverado, Quintessa, you name it. But but I and I had all of these samples in my house, but I could have one glass. Because <laughs> yeah. I always say if I have one glass and it has so much, like it's 14 and a half percent, it's like technically sherry and it's blowing the back of my head up. So I can only well, have one glass of red. And I well, usually see that for dinner. What I tell people in tastings, which a lot of people find fascinating, is that let's say you drank a bottle of wine that's 14, 15% alcohol. And I drink a bottle of wine that's 12.5% alcohol. The difference in alcohol intake that you had over me is close to three vodka tonics. Oh, wow. Uh, so would you drink a bottle of wine and ask for three vodka tonics? Your friends would think you're nuts, but that's exactly what you did if you did the 15%. And so, or put it another way, if you uh, drink two four-ounce glasses of wine at 12.5% alcohol, you're under the drink drive limit. If you drink two four ounce glasses of wine at 14 and a half percent you're over the drink drive limit so mm-hmm. alcohol makes a big difference oh, it sure and, does it sure does the- but there were some really wonderful wines that i did have and most of it and i was you know i'm sort of interested in i in napa's napa and everybody loves napa and snow and this that, and the other but i i'm very interested in lake county there's some fun wines from lake county and they have they're, they're producing an elevation and it changes the wine so they're not as big. And, you know, they, I, I don't know. Um, there were some wines being produced in Son- Sonoma ABA as well, a little bit closer no. to the coast. Right. Um, so, yeah, you know, and I, I love, you know, Paso Robles and the whole mid-coast too. So, and there's wine being produced all over California. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so I asked all of my my guests this, and, and just, this is a broad question. What do you love? What do I love? Mm-hmm. Or in wine? In general. It could be in wine. It could be anything. I love life. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, a, a, but you was, sort of have a dream life. I mean, you get to travel around the world and taste wine, so that's kind of fun. Well, I was I was blessed to have a very happy childhood, and I feel very sorry for people who don't have happy childhoods. You know? Sure, I agree. Um, and... I think, unfortunately, the past few years and uh, have been a very depressing for a lot of people. And, and sure. even I find losing family. Where in England did you grow up? Um, I grew up in London. Okay. I went, I went to boarding school in Dorset. Um, oh, where in London? Um, in Fulham. Well, Fulham. started in Chelsea until I was seven, and then Fulham. Uh, and yeah, so, so I very briefly lived in London. My last term in school, I went to Kingston upon Thames oh, nice. for college and uh, or, or university. And uh, I lived in Roehampton, which is just over the river, sort of. Yeah, yeah, not so far. I'm very, close to there. I'm very close to there because um, my flat I have a flat now, which is in Putney. Uh, in, sorry, in, sorry, in Hammersmith. In Hammersmith isn't far, it's yeah. actually in yeah. Fulham, but it's very close to Hammersmith. Yep. Edge. Yeah, so I lived there for a year, and then I came back and lived in Boston. And I worked for Master Chef Mousehouse for three years, oh. and he was—he I did a pilot with him for my show. Uh, he's amazing. He's still—he's still in Massachusetts. And then um, uh, that's where I learned about wine, French wine. And then I went to Dublin and was managing restaurants, and ended up getting in the wine business, selling Italian wine. Um, yeah, but I—I I, I love London. I miss it there. So you still—you're there from time to time. Yeah, I've been there four times this year already, and it's only. Oh, good. Okay, well, did you go to the coronation or no? I did not. No, I yeah. thought that was just one too many. Um, you know, you couldn't help but watch it. You know, and uh, yeah, I did watch it, and it was you know, it's just 
classic English um, spectacular pomp and circumstance. It was brilliant. But it's so much better on TV. You know, I felt sorry for the people who are just sitting in the rain. Sat out in the rain. And you you get a one minute glimpse of a thing going past if 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 you're lucky, right? So, yeah, um, no, I know. And uh, so one more thing: um, if people want to find your products or see them, where would they find them? It's broadbentselections.com? No, not broadbentselections.com. Broadbent.com. Broadbent.com. Okay, yeah. very good. You go to broadbent.com. Right. Um, also, if you follow my Facebook, which is simply Bartholomew Broadbent, we also have business broadband sections facebooks but my my own bartholomew broadband is where i I post wine stuff but also personal stuff because i think and then you do you have an instagram page i presume i do i'm not so active on that okay Um, this is the place to find you okay bartholomew broadband again um on instagram uh but the website broadbent.com shows everything we've got i was looking at it earlier it's a great website and it looks like you have a really good staff so you're very lucky we have a fantastic song. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I asked all of my guests to pick a song. Did, were you able to pick a song for us? So it's on my desk here, uh, under my desk here, I've got a cupboard full of records. Um, okay. And so I was looking through that because I'm, I was, you know, 1980s is my music era. Mm-hmm. And I've got a son who makes me listen to all of the current stuff and I go to I've been to more concerts in the past four years than I went to in the rest of my life probably combined mm-hmm. but so you know whether it's Simon Garfunkel or Pink Floyd or or Steve Hackett or um, Lou Reed or you know all of those things and you you warn me that you're going to ask me to pick a song and I mean that's just like it's hard it's, it's a hard thing. If I had to pick one song, I'd have a hard time too. Someone says, "Pick your favorite wine." I can do that, but right. pick a favorite song, and it maybe, um, maybe Pink Floyd's "Dark Side of the Moon." That's just oh, I like that. That's fantastic. We have a we have a Pink Floyd cover band that does a thing here in Maine. It's a guy named Tom Fonts, and they're fantastic. Really, really good. If you're ever in Maine and they do it, you have to see them because. They have this whole crew of local musicians who get together and do all of the Pink Floyd songs. It's really amazing. I wonder. So there's there's a there is a um, group that's sort of called something like Pink Floyd, but not. It's and they actually yes. go around and they tour. Yeah, and they're brilliant. I've very good. Them. They're fantastic. Yeah, it's very hard to replace them. All right. Well, listen. Thank you very much. It, it's been a, a treat to have you here, and best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thanks okay. for Have a good day. Thank uh, you. We'll see you in Maine soon. Yeah. Yes, you will. And here's your song. <laughs> Let me know when you're in Maine. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Bye. So, so you think you can tell Can you tell a green field?